2: Up next, my unedited conversation with civil rights legend Ruby Sales. There is a shorter, produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Um, yeah, Diane, come. Come. Um, there's at least one place for one or two more people in the sofas, which are our pl- favorite places to spend the work day. Um, so one of the things about, we, we just, we built out this space, uh, we've been in here less than three years. We were previously in a big media organization working in cubicle land and you can see that we kind of went wild with what we wanted to be different and, um, and it's been really exciting for us to be able to think about having a hospitable public, uh, physical space that can also, in which we can do what we do. We kind of translate the, the values and virtues of our um, media space, where hospitality is a big virtue for us. And uh, as a result, that also means that we have all these ideas that we can do things we've never done before. <laughs> and this is one of them. We have, we've done plenty of public things. We've never done anything quite like this. Um, but somehow, when we started talking to Jonathan, I mean the, 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 the origin of this, of this convening is this, the public the, theology reimagined work that we're doing with the Henry Luce Foundation. And uh, when we wrote that grant after having the conversations we had with Jonathan, it just made sense to us that we could that you know, we were so excited about, not just about the work we wanted to do with this. But the kind of ecosystem that Henry Luce Foundation is creating, and, and wanting to make sure, because uh, one of my frustrations with the world right now is not that there's not enough good initiative going on. We have such an abundance of good initiative, uh, but I want more dot connecting and cross pollination. And so I thought, you know, maybe we we can do that, and we can even even maybe do that physically. And we also just want to know more about what other people are up to, so that also so that we can serve this sphere of. Public theology reimagined, what, whatever that is. Um, but having said that, this is kind of experimental in terms of the form. I am not a facilitator. Um, we will not have breakout sessions. There's not. I, I don't have any of the usual structure. Um, and I have to say, just probably just because of my personality type i don 't ever like the usual structure, so it 's kind of liberating, but this may not work <laughs> um, what What I do know how to do and what we do every day is we 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 are conversationalists, so we 're going to try to conduct this in a, in a conversational manner, um, and we 're going to start it with a big conversation in a minute with with Ruby Sales. Um, I thought I should say just a little bit before we start kind of some framing in terms of uh, what this is about, uh, the vision we bring to it, the, um, that will be informed by what happens here. Um, and I, but I'd like, before we start, maybe for Jonathan Van Antwerpen, just, just to say a few words about this public theology initiative, and I don't even know if you call it that, but it essentially that's how I see it, that you've been starting as, as a program officer at Luce. Hello. Is it working?
3: Okay. Are we good? No? Yeah? Good. Well, I'm really just honored to be here in, in this wonderful space. I'm grateful to Krista and her colleagues for gathering us together with a, an amazingly impressive group of people, um, many of whom I know, some of whom I don't. I look forward to, to meeting those of you that I haven't yet um, met. I'll be brief, and then, I, as I told Krista, I'll be standing back and and spending most of the time listening, I hope. Um, When I came to the Luce Foundation a couple of years ago, um, we made a small grant to Columbia University Libraries to support an archival project um, at the Burke Library, uh, formerly the Library of Union Theological Seminary, still houses its papers. And I was shown when I went up to the library a letter from 1898 written by Henry Winters Luce who is the the one of the parents in whose honor the Luce Foundation was established. Um, he was a Christian missionary educator <clears throat> to China, um, and the and the father of uh, Henry Arlus, the founder of the Luce Foundation. And it was a letter written on first landing in Yokohama Harbor on his way to China for the first time. And in the letter sent back to friends and family members in the United States, he um, describes with a brief brief ethnographic vignette witnessing um, a set of Buddhist practices. And then he says, our hearts were weighed down by the burdens of heathenism. And uh, I've been fond of repeating this story because um, it both, that's a, uh, a, it's, it's a wonderfully awful line uh, that captures a particular uh, moment in, um, in missionary history but it's also one that the, family, uh, the Luce family recaptured in telling the story of what happened to Henry Winters Luce through his decades in the missionary field in China. Uh, and the story is that he underwent a personal transformation that made him much more open to um, others of various kinds, including people of, of other faiths. And the Luce Foundation's theology program has, from the beginning, um, animated, uh, been animated by that spirit of ecumenism. Um, Henry Winters loose came back and, and taught um, at Hartford Seminary. Uh, and as I said, it, the foundation was established um, partly in his honor. So the theology program has had this orienting attitude of openness that's really animated its work from the earliest uh, days. In the last couple of decades, that work became much more multi-religious in focus. And in the words of our president, um, the spirit of radical inclusion has really informed the theology program's work and also uh, the work of many of the other programs at the foundation. I'm glad that our vice president, Sean Buffington, is is here uh, with us today as well. He's sitting, sitting right to my right. Um, Sean has come to the foundation um, about the same time as I did, a little bit later, and is, uh, among other things, looking at our work in the higher education sector. And one of the things I admire about the Lewis Foundation is that We are unabashedly intellectual in our approach to our work. Um, And part of that uh, commitment involves working with a range of institutions of higher education, Um, seminaries, divinity schools, research universities. But we also realize, um, especially in the theology program, uh, the importance of supporting scholarship with commitment. Um, not simply supporting scholarship that stands back from the world, but that is engaged with the world, and indeed extending the idea of scholarship beyond academic institutions. Uh, Part of the orienting attitude of openness that I mentioned involves also working across lines that typically are thought to separate the religious from the secular. Uh, The literary critic, um, Professor of English Michael Warner, in a beautiful little essay called Memoirs of a Pentecostal Boyhood, um, writes that um, of those of us who once were found and now are lost, <laughs> um, those are people that are important to the luce Foundation's work. Um, and as Michael says, we are legion. Um, I don't think that category of people is a- adequately captured by terms like uh, spiritual but not religious, religious nuns, and so forth, but it's an important part of our work and it's, an, it's, it's one of the many things that Um, excite me about the things that Krista and her colleagues are doing. Many of our grantees are also animated by the work of social justice and the pursuit of the common good, and that takes various forms, and and those of you in the room um, are involved in doing that work. And the broader umbrella under which we've come to organize much of this work, and it's not an initiative at this stage, but it does a thread—it does represent a thread running through many different grants that the Loose Foundation has made in recent months—is the notion of public engagement, uh, public theology, in particular, and the public understanding of religion. Not really sure exactly what that means. It means many different things if you look at the work of the grantees who are mobilizing that term. And um, I'm just delighted to be a small part of this ecosystem uh, that Krista is uh, helping us uh, nurture. So thank you, uh, and uh, I look forward to the next uh, 24 hours or so.
0: Yeah.
2: We have 24 hours together, including sleep. Um, I also will say, just based on my personal preferences since I get to run this thing, you know I also believe in long breaks and time between the end of the convening and dinner so that you can rest or talk to people one-on-one. so um, Just a few structural things. We lost a few people um, who were planning to be here, who were on the original list: Um, Michelle Martin, um, uh, Jerusha Lampi, Jillian Gonda, our colleague from Fetzer. And these tended to be, you know, they just needed to attend to something closer to home. Um, You know, I want to say this group, and I should, I should clarify this. I, I think about half of the people in this group are. Connected with the Henry Luce Foundation initiatives, and um, but Jonathan was, you know, very insistent that we not just invite that that, it, that we also open that up. So um, it's an interesting mix of people. Uh, there could be infinite variation on on who's here, and it, you know, a, even as I was preparing it, I thought this is probably something one would want to do again. Um, we can all think of people who aren't in the room or projects not in the room who we'd like to have here. Um, but we have to start somewhere, and I think it's a wonderful place to start. Um, I, w- I was thinking as I prepared uh, for this um, about the progression of the notion of public theology, you know, as I've experienced it in the years of this project. And it seems to me that 10 or 15 years ago, I was with a lot of people who were saying things like, who is the neighbor of our day? (laughs) And that may just be because I was hanging out with too many theologians, or I'd just gotten out of divinity school. I'm sure it had something to do with that. Um, I even, in 2009, in January 2009, I think, uh, did an event with David Brooks and E.J. Dion at Georgetown University right after the first Obama inauguration. Um, and the subject, and, and Obama had talked, had, was quoting Reinhold Niebuhr in his speeches, and he was known as Obama's theologian. And we actually had a really interesting discuss, discussion, and E.J. Dionne and David Brooks both have have referred to Niebuhr. Um, and so that was fascinating. But I, I, and, and, and what I, you know, I have to say Niebuhr is somebody who I really did not like when I was in divinity school, when I wanted, Theology and religion to be much, to be pure, um, but I I uh, you know I wrote a lot about Niebuhr in, in my first book, and uh, I think what I treasure so much about just that opening line of the nature and destiny of man. You know, man is his own most vexing problem. Um, is pointing out to people that public theology in its in its history is as much about a sophisticated analysis of the human condition, uh, a kind of sophisticated analysis that we get in very f- few other places in our culture, um, as much as it is an inquiry about God. It, 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 those two things go hand in hand. And uh, I don't know. It just becomes clearer and clearer to me that we need a sophisticated, not just an analysis, but a reckoning with the human condition if our greatest aspirations to wisdom and virtue and justice in public life are going to be anything like approached, um, I think that man is his own most vexing problem is a fantastic diagnosis of the global economy and what, what, is, what is crazy about it. I think it's, uh, it's an apt diagnosis of the fact that American democracy right now is technically functioning. And we have the presidential race we have. Um, I hear Abraham Joshua Heschel's words. Uh, some, when it, what is, when, it, when it comes to a, in a free society, some are guilty, but all are responsible. You know, I think that is, so, that is the kind of uh, reflection that I think public theology could be injecting into this moment as we reel from something like Orlando, or Ferguson, and all the, all the things those places um, and events have come to represent. And of course, um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision, the Civil Rights Movement's vision, was animated by the theological dream and the spiritual work of the beloved community, of creating the beloved community. Um, and that work of love, of knowing our belonging to each other, of inhabiting communities of care, Along with our rights, is the tragically unfinished work we are witnessing now, and it threatens to make a mockery of all the laws we changed. It's interesting to me, though, that these days, you know, I I also realize in the last few years I don't hear people talking about even asking that question where is the neighbor of our day? And I'm sure, you know, fewer and fewer people would even know who I'm talking about. In fact, we had a board meeting last week, and I told them that we had this convening coming up, and, you know, they'd I'd mentioned the Public Theology Reimagined Grant, but but one of my board members said, what is public theology? And I realized that it's not at all. Uh, it, it, it's also probably not something that even this group could come up for, you know, with a definition for. So I think that's part of what I want us to try to get at and try to put some words around together. This is a cha- this is a challenge, but I think it's also a gift that public theology, the language of public theology, has kind of become a blank slate for us to, to write on. Um, what I said to my board, uh, because I felt like it, they are that generation where it could start here. Well, it's public theology reimagined is that we have to have something that's not Reinhold Niebuhr, um, not probably uh, not a white man who would look just right on Time magazine. I mean, I think King is in that picture, but it's mostly men and it's mostly white men who we think of, and Protestants. Um, That public theology reimagined has to emerge from and speak to the vast diversity and fluidity of this part of life in modern lives, and and that that will mean in part that it will it will be in places uprooted from the traditional ground, from the ground of the traditions, that the the place from which this this language and this practice comes. Public theology for me is about modeling the virtues that accompany the work of theology, the intellectual work of theology, connecting up grand religious ideas with human reality, which is messy. And and what I long for in our public life, and and I don't equate that narrowly with political life, but certainly with public life and political life, that we should be able to articulate religious and spiritual points of view, to challenge and deepen thinking on every side of every important question, on every side of every debate. So the way I've come to think of the inquiry of these two days, these 24 hours, is that we will explore, first of all, what is it? What is public theology? What is it becoming? What do we long to make of it? And how can we accompany each other in that work? after uh, we have a conversation up here. Then we'll have a 30-minute break. Um, And then we'll come back and we'll do introductions. um, And we're going to have conversational introductions rather than going around the circle, and we'll see how that works. I do want to say that for now, all of our colleagues are here from on being. and I just want to do a shout out for them, because some of them them will be here and some of them will leave. You met Trent. Mariah is right here. Uh, I can't see everyone. Uh, Dupe is our new intern, just started. Um, Ariana is also a new intern. Um, Asil uh, has come on with us for the last few months, and we have this thing called the Civil Conversations Project that we're trying to wrestle to the ground, and she's she's come in to help us with that. And Lily Percy is the senior producer of the radio show. Um, I know Annie Parsons is here somewhere. There's Annie. Annie's our community engagement coordinator, Selena. Marie is uh, one of our digital, our digital producers. And if I can't, Chris is back here who is, do, he is all things technical and the art and craft of what we do. So, um, which brings me to Ruby Sales. And we are so, I'm so honored to have you here. And um, what we're going to do is have kind of an on-being conversation up here for about 45 minutes. And we are taping it, because we think it might well make a great radio show. And then we're going to open it up for a a conversation with all of us, and we'll pass the microphone around. Um, And uh, I think that's all I need to say by way of introduction. So I um, the last few years, I've had some some of the conversations that have changed me the most were with people like John Lewis and Vincent Harding and Gwendolyn Zahara Simmons. Um, They've helped me understand that as we move into this new chapter, this chapter we're in now with our reckoning with who we are as a people, with our reckoning with race and everything that it has to do with and with our belonging to each other, um, we have a very simplistic memory of this incredible movement that you were part of, that you helped bring into the world. Um, we misremember things. We don't remember things or, and people. Um, and and that that, but there's that it has seemed to me that there's so much there to harvest that could teach us and guide us and inform us as we walk through the present. Um, and And it is very much, as they have helped me understand more completely than I did before or than I learned in school, it was work of public theology. It was spiritually, it was about the human change that makes social change possible, and it was spiritually animated and rooted. Um, and what also I, I think is so important to shine a light on is that um, because you all were so young when you, I mean, you were, you were a teenager when you became a leader of this movement and so many of you were, so you were still with us to be our teachers, uh, to accompany us. and. Um, so that's the spirit in which I invite you here today. Thank you. And I it seemed to me because this is this work of transformative change, this, this magnificent work of public theology in living memory that is with us to learn from now. And a great way to start to start to be grounded in our own history as we begin to talk about the the, the time we inhabit now. And so I'm just I am just going to read a little bit of uh, your biography from you know, the official biography. Um, to to do a formal introduction of Ruby and then move into our conversation. Ruby Nell Sales looks at her work as a calling rather than a career. She answered the call to social justice as a teenager at Tuskegee Institute, where she joined the Student Nonviolent, Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, and worked on voter registration in Alabama. She received a BA degree from Manhattanville College and attended graduate school at Princeton University. She received a Master's of Divinity degree from the Episcopal Divinity School. While there, she developed a reputation as a preacher, and she's preached at churches and cathedrals around the nation. After Divinity School, she founded and still directs a national nonprofit organization called the Spirit House Project. As a social justice activist, her work is cited in books, journals, articles, and film. She's received numerous awards and honors. An oral history of Ruby Sales is housed at the Library of Congress, and she was selected as one of 50 African-Americans to be spotlighted in the new Smithsonian Museum of African-American History and Culture in Washington, DC, which is scheduled to open this year. She has made the struggle for racial justice one of the centerpieces of her work through the Spirit House Project. Since 2007, she has worked to expose the state-sanctioned deaths of African-Americans by white police security guards, and vigilantes by compiling a national database on these events, offering spiritual, financial, and organizational support to families, and by exposing these activities through church and community meetings, forums, and press conferences around the nation. And these include what she calls teach-ins and preach-ins, which I find very intriguing. and Ruby, when I was getting ready to interview you, there are two um, sources that I found that were wonderful for me for preparing, and one was a n- series of conversations you did with Vincent Harding, who uh, we miss, and who was such Definitely. a great yeah, such a great person, and um, and also a panel that you did at the American Academy of Religion meeting last year. <laughs> With and Serene Jones, <laughs> uh, came, you know, told me about this after it happened and said it was just so astonishing. And I've been quoting from this panel uh, ever since, including in a conversation I had with Patrice Cullors of Black Lives Matter a few months ago. Um, and that also motivated me to want to have you here with us. Uh, Cornell West was also on the panel, and he said, he said. Ruby Sales is black, spiritual nobility, and democratic royalty of the highest level. <laughs> and so that's who we have with us here today. I do want to say that I think you have so much to tell us and so much to talk about. And I'm, I'm going to be in charge of this conversation. Make sure we stay focused. <laughs> um, thinking about this larger audience, you know the million people who might be in the room with us when it becomes a radio show? And, um, and also the inquiry of this particular group of how we are to live and move forward and transform ourselves as theologians, but also as people and as a people. So I want to start where I always start my conversations uh, by just asking how you would start to talk about uh, what was the spiritual background of your childhood?
0: First of all, thank you for inviting me. And um, it's really a, a great pleasure to be a part of this circle and to really deepen our conversation and our thinking on the meaning of, and I'd like to expand the, the word from theology to public theologies because we're not a monolith. Mm. Um, I grew up in the South. I'm from three generations of Southern Baptist preachers. My grandfather was a Southern Baptist preacher. My great grandfather was a Southern Baptist preacher. My father was a Southern Baptist preacher um, and a chaplain in the army. And I was bred on black folk religion, which is not the same thing as empire religion. It was a religion that was forged during enslavement in the fields of America, in the the fields um, on plantations. It was a religion that combined the ideals of American democracy with a theological sense of justice. It was a religion that focused on right relations. And it was a religion, black folk religion, was a counterculture religion that stood over and against empire Christianity or empire religion. It was a religion that said that people who were considered property and disposable were essential in the eyes of God and even essential in a democracy, although we were enslaved. And so I was deeply impacted, and it was a religion where the language and the symbols were accessible. That the God talk was accessible to even seven-year-olds. So, although as a seven-year-old, as a seven-year-old, I could sing fifty songs without missing a line, and. Everybody in the community had access to the theological microphone. So as a little black girl growing up in the South, I was was in many ways precocious. I would go to black churches at six and seven years old with my grandmother. And I would stand up in the church, having learned these lines by heart and very good at repetition. I would say, I'm so happy to be in the house of the Lord. Uh, giving honor and praise to God. And, and so, this sense of being a part of something larger than myself, being a part of a, of a, a living spirituality, a living religion, it was not a debatable religion, it was an a, a applied religion where there was a connection between what you believed and how you lived in the world. And I was deeply influenced. By, by this black folk religion.
2: You, you, you said something to Vincent Harding. You said, religion, for me, growing up in Columbus, Georgia, was the ground that I stood on that positioned us to take, that positioned us to stand against the wind.
0: The winds, yes, to stand against the winds of Southern apartheid, to mm-hmm. so stand against the winds. How do I describe I grew up in in the heart of Southern apartheid. And I'm not saying that I didn't realize that it existed, but our parents were spiritual geniuses who created a world and a language where the notion that I was inadequate or inferior or less than never touched my consciousness. I didn't grow up believing that about myself. I grew up believing that I was a first-class human being and a first-class person. And our parents were spiritual geniuses who were able to shape a counterculture of religion, black folk religion that raised us from disposability to being essential players in society. It also gave us the resilience to stand up against the assaults of Southern apartheid and the violence. And it also taught us something serene about love. I love everybody, I love everybody, I love everybody in my heart. And so hate was not, was not anything in our vocabulary. And so it seasoned us. Actually, what I as I think about it, when you think about black folk religion in this country, it offered a way out of the dungeons of empire Christianity. So, you know... Oh, sorry. You no, know, go ahead. Um,
2: one thing, just what you said about... you, I lo- Hate was not in your vocabulary.
0: Absolutely not
2: but you you do make this really important distinction between black folk religion which is what which is what nourished you which yes. is what formed you and the black church and black preachers which are in the picture but which is mostly what we've seen as the picture and and you, you know you say in one place that you know this that the heart of the southern freedom movement it wasn't as much black preachers as it was black congregations ordinary people who participated in extraordinary things on well, this foundation that you're describing?
0: Well, first of all, as I said earlier, black folk religion grew up in the bush harbors on plantations.
2: And those were there these. Were these, no, these tr- there uh, were
0: no buildings. There were there was not an institutionalized church. It was
2: like outdoors, outdoors and sanctuary yes, trees, yes, secret yes, meetings. Yes, yes, right?
0: yes. It was a gathering spot for the community. And, and it, it was in this setting that black people began, began to talk about God in this society where they were enslaved. So it was not, and everybody participated. The spirituals came up out of this environment. And everyone had a voice in the conversation. So it was not as if the preacher's voice was the most primary and most essential voice. It was participatory. Everybody had a place in the circle, and you could speak from that position in the circle. So it was really a most democratized space that was very different than Empire Christianity or the white church. Mm -hmm. And in the North, however, the black church was a little bit different because you had a free black population. And and black religion in the North did grow up in Mother Bethel AME Church in Mm -hmm. Philadelphia in the abolitionist movement. So you you cannot think of the uh, black folk religion as a monolith. And when I talk about the church, I'm really shattering the mythology that it was the black church that was at the heart of the Southern Freedom Movement. It was, it was black folk religion. It was black, ordinary black people and not black preachers. Most black preachers stood over and against the movement. Mm-hmm. But it was really ordinary black people in the South who really forced the church to allow mass meetings and other places to meet there. And Martin Luther King should not be seen as the black church. He came out of, of black folk religion and was part of 1% of the black pastors who really supported the Southern Freedom Movement.
2: And and one of the things I start to understand as I listen listen to you and read you is that a lot of the themes that, uh, you know, that when I talk to somebody like John Lewis, when I hear about how the, or, or, or Vincent Harding, how the philosophy of nonviolence was developed and and you know they were studying Gandhi and Thoreau and Jesus and practicing and doing role playing, but but what I what I understand from you is that, uh, is that a lot of the elements of that actually were in,
0: in black folk, folk religion. W- yes. So when
2: you say you Gonna learn to lay love, down
0: my sword and shield down by the riverside, down by the riverside, and study war no more. Yeah, nonviolence. When you look at black spirituals, you hear a theology and a philosophy of nonviolence. And so that this was an essential part of black folk religion. It was not a retaliatory um, religion. It was a religion predicated on right relations and love and nonviolence. And so when we think about Martin Luther King, it's incorrect to imagine that he was shaped at Crozier or Boston University. That his formative years, his formation um, in terms of nonviolence really began in in his father's church at Ebenezer Baptist Church and in the black community.
2: And I also hear you saying things like, um... You learned agape, right? You lived agape.
0: absolutely.
2: And it wasn't just that hate wasn't in your vocabulary. You've said it this way. You also learned, I can't control the world, but I can control myself, and you are not going to coerce me into hating. Yes,
0: that's the meaning of the song, I love everybody. I love everybody in my heart, and you can't make me hate you, and you can't make me hate you in my heart. Now, that's very powerful because you have to understand that this spiritual came up out of an environment where white enslavers promoted the notion that they were the masters of the universe and the Alpha and Omega's of all creation. And everything of who black people were, we owe to white people in their creation of who we were. So to say, you can't make me it was an acknowledgement not only that we control our internal lives but also it it was a it contested the notion of the omnipotent power of the white enslaver that was very revolutionary and very profound as an as a song of resistance
2: um so in 1963 you enrolled at Tuskegee. The civil rights movement is in full swing at that point. Um, on August 20th in 1965 you'd actually just been released from spending a couple of days in jail, is that right? Spending some yes. for participating Almost in a, week, a yes. two weeks for for participating in a voting rights demonstration. And you're hot and thirsty and headed, with a couple of others, towards a grocery store to buy something to drink, a soda. And one of those people is John, Jonathan Daniels, a 26-year-old seminarian. And that became a day that, um, well, it was, it's one of the stories that is remembered. um, And a formative, traumatic and formative day for you, I think.
0: Well, I, I think it was one of uh, one day of trauma. Mm-hmm. But I think I really want to say that the Southern Freedom Movement, one of the things that Americans have not come face to face with is the violence and the terrorism that, were inherent, that was inherent in the Southern Freedom Movement and the Southern way of life.
2: Would so, you tell a story of what happened? What happened to Jonathan? What happened? Well, let me just okay, get to okay, that. Okay, I think this okay. is really important yeah, because
0: right. Jonathan was part of a context. Mm-hmm. What happened was not was not an aberration. It was a part of the daily life of what it meant to live in a repressive and violent society where we were constantly facing daily violence. For example, it was. We would be in a car, Stokely Carmichael, me, Gloria, Larry, John Lewis. We would be driving to Selma. And you know, nobody was more than 22 years old. And out of nowhere would come a pickup truck. And in that pickup truck would be white men who would have shotguns. And we would have to run for our lives 100 miles an hour on a road in Alabama. That was a daily stress that we lived under. And so when Jonathan came into this environment, this was a new environment for Jonathan. He had not lived in the South. He was from New England, um, had not come face to face with that kind of terrorism. So he was thrown into that environment that we were living every day. and. We had been arrested not for voter's registration, but because the young black children, young black people in Fort Deposit wanted to demonstrate because their parents were sharecroppers who were being cheated at the local store. And they were outraged. And they came to SNCC, they initiated this They came to SNCC and asked us, would we participate with them in this demonstration? We were horrified, to be perfectly honest. Horrified and terrified. (laughs) Because uh, Fort Deposit was a bloody county with a history. When I first went into Lowndes County, Stokely took me to the county seat And we, I went to my first registration attempt. And he took me to, and the sheriff pulled a gun on him that day and said, nigger, tonight you're going to be in hell. And I'm naive. I've come from a very sheltered family. And I'm coming for the first time face to face with this kind of terrorism. And Stokely Carmichael looks at the sheriff and says, tonight there will be an integrated hell and that just really stunned me I couldn't believe that. <laughs> I was awestruck I, I just somebody would actually let would not even blink an eye and and so that was the spirit that was a part of the movement and so I'm saying all this to say that when you signed up, to be a part of the movement, it became very clear that we were willing to die. Not because we were suicidal, but because we believed so much in the work that we were doing that we did not believe that death was the end. We believed that we were. That, our, that dying would not mean the end of the movement, that the movement would continue. And so that we were always pressing through fear, pressing through the daily reminders that we could be killed. And so this particular time, we were in jail, and we were literally psychologically tortured. Yes, I said tortured. America must come to grips with the fact that torture is not something that happened overseas, it's something that happened in America. And we were tortured. I was very ill in jail, 16 years old, very ill in jail. They wouldn't call a doctor, threatened to have us raped by the black men who were in jail, um, thrown up against the wall, The day that we were arrested, white men came out with baseball bats, garbage pails, all kinds of instruments of torture, guns, and threatened to kill us. And the sheriff came and put us on the back of a garbage truck and I had never been so happy to be on the garbage truck in my life because they meant business and took us to jail where we were not given food, where we had to beg for water. And the jail was rancid, stinking, and filthy. And for days, they did would not allow anyone to come and visit us. And Jonathan and I passed notes with each other through one of the black trustees in the jail. And one day, one morning, we were made to get up, put on our clothes, and told that we were being released. And nobody wanted to be released because it didn't. It was, it was unusual that we would be released and nobody would be there waiting for us. And so we protested, but they made us leave and told us if we didn't leave, we'd be in trouble. So John and I, by then, had developed a very close friendship. And so when we got out of jail, we were asked by the group of 15 to go and get sodas for everyone. And when we got to the store, Tom Coleman was standing in the store with a shotgun and threatened to blow my brains out.
2: He was the owner of the store? This
0: is, No, he was not the owner oh. of the store. He was a vigilante Okay, who said that he was a deputy, but he was a white vigilante okay. who had armed himself, who was determined to kill somebody that day. And so, the rest, you probably know the story. Jonathan pulled me back, I fell, and Tom Coleman shot him. And Father Marshall was also with us, who had just come down from Chicago. He was a priest, and he was holding the hands of a local young lady named Joyce Bailey. And they were running, and Tom Coleman shot him in the back. And I thought I was dead, because I fell on the ground. And I realized I wasn't dead when I heard Father Marshall crying for water in that hot sun. He had been shot. And Tom Coleman would not allow anyone to bring him water. And that day really began to change the tone in the movement. It had been too many deaths, too much torture, and people began to lose heart. And it was very difficult for Stokely and other SNCC people including myself to go to New Hampshire to take the body to Mrs. Daniels, her only son who had been murdered in Alabama. This story does not get told and when I talk about this story, not that particular story but the history of violence and terrorism that existed at the heart of Southern white culture. The torture that people endured. The bombing at 16th Street Baptist Church of the three black girls. The hundreds of black kids in Birmingham from the ages of 10 to 15. Who were thrown in the fairgrounds, arrested, beaten, dogs, billy clubs, horses, cattle prods. Mrs. Hamer in a jail in Mississippi beaten so badly until it damaged her her kidneys, and I think that became response. That was the reason why she died so early. But the personal humiliation, the desecration of the body, beating Mrs. Hamer on her private parts, pulling her dress up, and publicly not only torturing her, but degrading her as a woman, violating her in that way. That is the story of the movement that rarely gets told.
2: Ruby, um, you, you went on. It's, I've heard you say that you, you carried this for a long time and didn't even talk about what you'd witnessed that day with Jonathan for a long time. But you ended up going to Divinity's. Well, the thing that
0: I have to say is that yeah. tr- truly, I'm grateful that Jonathan saved my life. Yeah. And truly, that was an important event. But at the same time, the narrative must include the profound impact that local black people had on shaping and stretching my life right. as a young black woman in the South. And so it's really important that we understand that Jonathan and I belonged to something that we had not created. We belonged to a movement of local people. We belonged to a movement where black folk religion was at the heart of this movement. And it was was a movement that really not only challenged white supremacy, but challenged the classism within the black community. Mm -hmm. And suddenly people who were not college educated, who did not speak perfect English, suddenly these people had access to the microphone. And they were the ones who were the legitimate speakers who determined the discourse for what it meant to be free and what it meant to, to, and, and the God talk that was a part of this conversation about freedom. So it was an important moment. In American history and in Black history in the South,
2: and um, you know, one thing you've said is that you, and you've likened yourself to the Black Lives Matter. A lot of the the kids who are involved in that today, that you were not especially religious, right? That you you had this you had this grounding in church, but you said that you used to complain. A lot of you used to complain when there had to be these obligatory prayers before everything started.
0: It Um, was downright embarrassing. (laughs) I mean, you know, you couldn't go to a mass meeting without these people always praying. And and it was like, my God, do we have to do this? (laughs) Um, But I, you know, when I first went on my first demonstration, I was really kind of naive. Unsophisticated, a peasant um, who had been bred on black folk religion and who really believed, I was a part of the Pepsi generation, who really believed that right was right and it would win out. So I went on my first de- demonstration, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but we were surrounded by horses and state troopers who wouldn't let us go to the bathroom. And I kept looking up at the sky, waiting for the exodus story to happen immediately. (laughs) And it didn't happen. Well, so, so, I expected God to appear, (laughs) some chariot to open up in the sky, because I couldn't imagine that we were so right and God would be so wrong. And my 17-year-old mind, I couldn't imagine that. I mean, my 16-year-old mind. And so I lost religion that day. And I slowly became a Marxist. I became a materialist. If it wasn't economics, if it wasn't race, then it didn't exist. I had no space in my life for it. And I thought black folks were religious fanatics, you know?
2: Well, so, so tell us, how did you eventually circle back to the place, or circle to the place? Maybe it's not back. Where you went to divinity school, where you started to be a public theologian, and what did that mean? How did well, that?
0: Well, I think the paradox is that even when we think we left home, we never really go anywhere. <laughs> and so I think that although I thought that I was not re- that I was not religious, the truth of the matter is. I was, and I went to church all the time, and that was the Sweet Honey Concerts, and Bernice Johnson Regan kept us in church, and all of the songs that she sang, and all of the music, and the God talk that she would do from the stage, she became the preacher for a generation of African-American young people. She herself was the daughter of a preacher who thought that we had left the church, but the church was so, I mean, but black folk religion was so deeply ingrained in us that we never really left it. So I carried with me the songs. I carried with me the testimonies. I carried with me the the whole notion of right relations. That that was a cornerstone mm-hmm. of how I imagined justice. Mm-hmm. Even when you in, didn't feel religious. Right. Yeah. I, I didn't realize, I, so I really never left. But a defining moment for me happened when I was getting my locks washed. And my locker's daughter came in one morning. And she had been hustling all night. And she had sores on her body. And she was just in a state, drugs, So something said to me, ask her, where does it hurt? And I said, Shelly, where does it hurt? And just that simple question unleashed territory in her that she had never shared with her mother. And she talked about having been incested. She talked about all of the things that had happened to her as a child. And she literally shared the source of her pain. And I realized in that moment, listening to her and talking with her, that I needed a larger way to do this work Mm. rather than a Marxist materialist analysis of the human condition. Mm. And also, I was riding down the road one day in Washington DC after having been in a demonstration against the war in Iraq. And suddenly, out of nowhere, I started crying. And I realized that God had been with me even when I hadn't been with myself. And those moments made me really began to seek to go back to really think deeply about black folk religion and to really want to develop in a very intentional way an inner life that had to do with how I lived in the world.
2: Mm. You have said that you are aware of a question alive in the world today of young people, the question of young people young black people, I think. How could black adults have thrown us into a den of people who don't love us? What, what's that? What, what are you describing there?
0: Oh, that's very deep and very complicated. Let me just say something about Black Lives Matter. Although we are familiar with it within a contemporary context, that has always been the cry of African-Americans from the point of in captivity through enslavement to Southern apartheid and Northern migration and de facto segregation was the assertion that black lives matter in a society that said that black people were property, in a society that said that black lives did not matter. And so this whole theme of Black Lives Matter has been the cornerstone of Black struggle and resistance in this country. It is So there is something that lives in the Black collective consciousness. That phrase comes directly out of the Black collective consciousness of, of, of struggle and resistance and reaffirmation. It comes out of a simultaneous Pedagogy and theology of accommodation and resistance at the same time, and within this uh, this 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 construct of accommodation and resistance, black people really, in many ways, that embedded in that is accommodation in terms of being an American, and resistance in terms of being African. The souls of black folk that William Du Bois talks about. It's always been within the black community the struggle to really harmonize these two realities. And part of what happened after post-Civil Rights uh, Southern Freedom Movement is that the movement, the mission of the movement became materialized and people thought that the movement, that what the movement had been about was jobs, position, status, when in fact it had not been about that at all. It had been about When King talked about the mountaintop, he was talking about a higher level of consciousness. He was talking about a movement where we harmonize the I with the we and the we with the I. He was talking about a Pentecost moment where we would, where within the concept of diversity, we would all be uh, uh, our common connections, as Beverly Harrison would say. And so with that misunderstanding where the movement became materialized, the things that had really united black people and held us together in terms of being a part of a community where we were well guarded and well protected, that many of us, many young people like myself, in pursuit, although it's really weird that I would have done that, having been a part of the movement, that we all left our homes never to look back. And in doing that, we left the black community unguarded. And there, and, and, there, and the mission was no longer a beloved community, but the mission became integration. And what that meant was that generations of young African American children were pushed to achieve this mission. And we sent them into places that were unsafe, where they were humiliated, and their egos were decimated in structures, as Toni Morrison said, out there they don't love our children. And these generations of African American children have felt abandoned. And there's a chasm that has grown up between younger and older African Americans based on this sense of, of younger people of having felt that they were abandoned. That they don't understand, that we understood the nature of white supremacy, and they're trying and they don't understand. Why did we send them, young children, into places like that without any protection? And you,
2: part of that protection, that kind of armor that you realize you wore without, just by taking it for granted, because it was something you breathed, something you moved yes. in, was that black folk religion.
0: Um, it was and also the, so- the songs, right? The- it was more than the black folk religion. Mm-hmm. That was one part of it. Mm-hmm. But it was also the black school culture, okay. the counterculture of black education that was a long train running towards excellence. Cheryl Blankenship, who's with me, we both grew up in that counterculture of black education. And just because the black schools were underfunded, it did not mean an under resourced. It did not mean that our minds were under-resourced. And so that in this environment, this counterculture of education, it produced, it was a a relationship, a project that began in 1865 when black men, newly uh, freed, met in Selma, Alabama, and pledged their utmost endeavors to educate the young for the preservation of our rights and liberties and to advance the black community. And therefore, it became a a union between community upbuilding and black education. And despite the pervasive myths that exist today that black people do not value education, the truth of the matter is, we probably overvalued education, because we thought education was a panacea um, for, uh, in terms of addressing injustice. Black people had a deep longing for education. They had a longing to read their titles clear. So black education, so within, within this counterculture of black education, black children were highly regarded well-protected, and, and were seen as investments, rather than problems and objects. And, and that our parents were deeply, that there was a coalition between parents, teachers, and principals. And it was a lifeline. If I were to talk about any institution that preserved black life and was responsible for the survival of the black community, I would say the counterculture of black education, which rested on more than 35 historically black colleges, good black schools from, there was Carver High School, my high school that I graduated from, Uh, was considered a good high school. The class of 1968 that my brother graduated from, of which he was a valedictorian, a governor scholar, a national merit scholar, has 12 national merit scholars in the class of 1968 at Carver High School, Spencer High School, Hunt High School, and Fort Valley. Ballard Hudson High School in Macon, Georgia, Price High School in Atlanta, Parker High School in Birmingham. These were good high schools that if you look at and do a study of quote unquote successful black people in this country, you will discover black people over the age of 55 or 60 75% 75% of successful black people came out of this counterculture of black education.
2: So I, I want to open this up. Um, I want to open our conversation up. I, I think I want to ask, I feel like you've taken us into seeing the present in a historical perspective.
0: Um, can I just say something as I, as we're talking? Yeah. As I think about the counterculture of black education, it, it suddenly occurs to me that at the heart of the pedagogy in the counterculture was black folk religion. <laughs> OK. Right. Yes, there was not a separation mm-hmm. between black folk religion in aspects of our daily lives in terms of the precepts and values mm-hmm. that we were bred on.
2: So so I think that leads into what I want to ask you. If we obviously what happened with desegregation oh among other things, right? The issues now, like the, the the realities now that have to be addressed are so complex. There's so many complex interweaving realities how would you what what are the questions what is the inquiry that a, that, a, that a that a theological a public a, a reflective public theologian would you know how would that inquiry direct or focus you know where we begin in reckoning first at the of present? all the
0: question is legitimacy what voices are legitimate to talk about God? And and I think that's a really important question. And I also think another important question, I've been thinking a lot about, well, let me just say this first. I think an important question is that the universality and universality particularity that any kind of public theologies, any public theologies, has to, should deal with that which we all have in common, that which is universal, issues like grief, love, sorrow, justice, but also at the same time cannot be devoid of our specific historical experiences. Mm-hmm. So we have to move, it, you know, we came through womanist theology, muharista theologies. Now I think that we are called upon to do a different kind of theology that incorporates the particular experience, the particular historical experience with the universal his, uh, experience, and to resolve that tension there is a tension. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, how do we develop a theology in the 21st century that builds on what we've learned about the particular, but also recognizes the universality? How do we talk, and this is very relevant in a world that is a global world now, how do we talk about uh, what it means to be a black American within the context of of our history, but what does it mean to talk about being a black American within a global universal experience? And so I think that we must begin to develop new language to talk about the human condition and to talk about God. And I think that it's really important, for example, I think that the language lags behind that which we know. Let me give you an example white privilege. We should be beyond that, that, that word, that, that phrase. We're not wanting privilege. What we're dealing with, what black people, brown people have dealt with for more than 400 years, has not been white privilege. It's been a violation of our rights and human our human and civil rights. So we do not want privilege because that creates an elitist society. What we really want, what what white people have that many people of color don't have, is not it's rights, human and civil rights. So I think that we've got to re- and we don't want to build bridges. We want to have access to civil and human rights. Because the problem with building bridges is that with with the hierarchy in our society, some people build the bridges while other people direct the traffic. And so we have to begin to really look at and an even language that we use like inclusion, that's an imperialistic term. Right. Because it assumes that somebody owns the table to include. And that's quite imperialistic. So we've got to start really looking at these issues. And we've got to start dealing with language. For example, when we look at oppression around the world, we have to develop a common language. Public theology must deal with a common language for talking about oppression. And I've come up with eight tools of oppression. These tools are containment, surveillance, the destruction of intimacy, dismemory, uh, the criminalization of parenting, uh, criminalization period, Fragmentation. fragmentation. Whether you're in Palestine or whether you're in the United States, these are the tools that empire uses around the world in order to maintain power. So I think that the theology that we're engaged in lacks far behind what we really know in our consciousness and and how the world has shifted. For example, I've been thinking a lot about this whole business of trans. And I've often wondered, if we can transcend gender, does that mean that we can transcend race? And does that mean that, in the, with the, as we deepen our conversations, does history matter? If we, f- in fact, can transcend, what does that really mean? And so, that I think, and, and so, what I become very concerned about is that history and reality. Becomes very, become very different constructs in the world that we live in today. That history becomes what I create in the moment. It's very individualistic and I create history in the moment. And reality is not predicated on history, but reality is predicated. For example, Donald Trump can say something that we know is absolutely not true because he says something different four minutes ago, but we will debate what he said four minutes later as if that's the reality. And so what does reality mean in a technological world where reality is now becoming virtual and, and constructed? How do we look at history and how do we look at reality? I'm deeply concerned about the 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 decimation of the meaning of history today. And I think it's a very difficult conversation that we have to begin to really think about how do we have this conversation without falling in the trap of loading it with our own prejudices. So if, in fact, I declare that I, I can be, if I'm a white person, Can I transcend race and become a black person? And if I say that I can do that, then what I'm doing is saying that the history of being black doesn't matter. That is what I decided matters in the moment. And so that I think that we've got to really begin to deepen, because at the heart of all theology is history. History is a cornerstone in how we talk about God. And we live in a world today where history doesn't really matter. Hmm. Because I can become anything that I want to become as long as I declare that I'm I'm the thing that I'm becoming. And so what does that really mean? Not as a way of putting down the possibility of people claiming who they are, but really to ask a fundamental question, can I become a black person not having borne the marks in the history of what it means to be black. And so I think that we are called upon to really begin to, and I think that's very advantageous for the empire to, 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 the less history matters, the more the empire gets away with not having responsibility for the history in the world that they've created. So although we think that that's radical sometimes, I wonder, are we children of the empire?
2: OK. Let's hear what is on your mind. Maya has a microphone.
4: Um, this is David Kim. I just want to say, Ruby, thank you. Uh, I wanted to start with that note of gratitude and indebtedness. Amongst the things that struck me in all the things you were talking about just now was this idea of the abandonment of children yes. and our abandonment of a responsibility to children.
0: Yes.
4: And so, you know, getting to the point of what you were talking about regarding uh, our non-participation in a full history is also a non-participation in the traditions that have shaped us, and a non-participation in tradi- and appreciation for those traditions. Because a part of that abandonment, it seems to me, is an abandonment of the stewardship of the traditions that have made things like the black freedom struggle, right? The black freedom traditions, plural. And the question I have for you is, what are the conditions that would redeem those traditions and redeem our participation in them such that the children we have abandoned, the children, that, as I've heard you say in other contexts, that we have marched back into empire. How do we regain their faith in us? How do we regain their trust, hmm. right? Because uh, you know, those, those communities that you grew up in, the black folk, folk religions, there's deep and abiding trust that was a part of that deep and abiding love. How are those young folks going to hear that we love them? How are they going to trust that we love them?
0: I think that there's another side to that question. It is not only how do we let young people know that we love them, but how do young people show their love for older people. Mm-hmm. So I think that relationship is very important. And I think that's a very challenging, David, an important question. In a world where we do not, where community does not exist as it has once existed, where all over the world you have fragmentation. In the United States, you have gentrification. You have the devastation of public spaces that once unified people together in relationship to one another. So it's very hard, that's going to be the role of public theologies for the 21st century is a redefinition of community and our relationship to each other. How is it that? We, and so that I think we are called upon. In many ways, is both challenging, but it also is a very exciting moment in theology, because we can expand our understanding, not only our understanding, but the reality of a global beloved community. That is, in many ways, much easier than it is to build from the ashes of, of 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 what has happened in this country in terms of fragmentation over the last 40 years. So I'm sorry I don't have an answer to that. But I think it's a real challenge that we must begin to talk about um, in, in terms of public theologies.
2: You know, I just want to say, um, One just to to um, affirm that from so one thing we know about our media space is that it's that young people are flooding in, and one of the things they like about what we do is that we give them we give them the voices of elders, right, and it's it's very it's it's the opposite of the kind of. Um, wisdom that you hear in media that if you want to attract the younger demographic you have to, you know, the idea is that you give them people who are exactly their age, sound exactly like them, don't use big words and it's just, it's insulting it's condescending and it's not true. Um, This cross-generational, there's this this hunger for cross-generational relationship.
0: There's a hunger. I was in a group um, three weeks ago with John Lewis Um, that Black Lives Matter Atlanta had convened and we were dealing with the intergenerational divide. And somewhere in that conversation I just simply said I offered an apology for the ways in which they had been abandoned. And that shifted the whole mood in the room and there was a very clear Understanding that there is a hunger for, inter- as much in terms of not just, there's a hunger that young people have to be claimed, to be a part of, 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 of an intergenerational, a transgenerational experience, to know people, because without knowing another generation, they feel incomplete. Just they don't just like I feel incomplete without knowing younger people. And so we are incomplete without knowing each other. So that intimacy, which has been one of the greatest trigger fingers of the Empire, is to destroy intimacy, to destroy how we know each other. and that the black community has been under this assault ever since enslavement where black people's families were sold away from each other. We've had to constantly fight to maintain that intimacy. And we were doing a good job of it, except, paradoxically, uh, except during integration, since integration. The intimacy has been further shattered.
2: And to your point about theology needing history, how is history transmitted? But by cross generational.
0: I mean, that's one one important
2: way. I think. Let me just say something
0: about that. I think that one of the things that theologies must have is hindsight, insight, and foresight. That is complete sight. And I think that fragmentation really shatters that sight. And it says that it's not an eyesight, it's a we sight. And so that I think one of the things, I don't like aging a whole lot. Um, the ankles, the knees hurt, etc But one of the things I do like is that from where I sit on my front porch, I have hindsight, insight, and foresight. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a beautiful gift of aging. <laughs>
5: Stephanie, uh, Thank you both so much for this incredible conversation. Um, I want to I hear any more that you have to say about this question about history and the role of memory in public theology. Um, Krista, you said at the beginning the, ro- the story of Ruby Sales and Jonathan Daniels is a, one of the stories that's remembered, and mm-hmm. that's right, and it should be remembered. Someone lays down their life we remember it, and there are memorials to him. We were talking about that earlier. Um, But there are also the stories that aren't remembered that you were talking about, Ruby, the just the daily ongoing humiliation, violence, torture. Um, And I'm wondering how, public theology tends to gravitate toward the figure you know, mm. Mm. Um, and you're. I, I hear you pushing us to do something more than that—not um, just gravitate toward the extraordinary figure, but to get at and remember and describe um, what life was like for a whole community. And I don't know what, as a public theologian yourself, um, how do you do that? Is you know, I think of. Um, you know a lot of writers who have worried over that too like how do i how do we you know is it is it through imagination is it through fiction is it through you know what 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 are our tools and how do we how do we remember that history in our public theology
0: well i think that there are several tools that we have before us that we can draw on cultural resources in the African-American community. Oral history has been very essential to, to perpetuating and preserving ordinary voices. I think black folk religion is not the voice of Reinhold Niebuhr. It's the voice of my grandmother, who says, hey, child. And so I'm saying there are all these ways that there are cultural resources um, that we have to draw on. And I think that it's really important, at the risk of going out there, a theology where the language is inaccessible to ordinary people, where God is so shrouded in symbols and language that the ordinary people person cannot even begin to access. You automatically begin with an exclusion. That's not a theology for ordinary people. It's a theology for elites. And you create a high priest, a culture of high priests, rather than a culture of ordinary people. And so I think that we can look at countercultures around the world. Black, we're not the only group of people with folk religion. Around the world you have Folk religion, and I think that to look for ways of, of 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 finding the voices of ordinary people is to look beyond empire Christianity or theology, except in those rare moments like the abolitionist movement
1: arguably the public theology of the last thirty or forty years has been the theology of of right-wing Christianity and of the oligarchy. And it's been so successfully mediated through both entertainment and news media that it has become the theology of everyday people. So I wonder how you think that we can reclaim that when we have so little access. for example, everything from the Occupy movement to Bernie Sanders to Black Lives Matter, if and when it gets talked about, it's talked about in a totally distorted way so part of public theology has to reach the it has to reach the public, and it's one thing to say you can have small community movements like black folk religion, but in a global society, can you really see change coming in those in that fashion.
0: First of all, let's just be clear about what people are you talking about when you talk about right wing religion having impacted people. What let's be clear, who are you talking about?
1: I'm talking about the a, a lot of um Right-wing, right-wing Christian values, even for those of us who aren't right-wing Christians, have become so disseminated in our culture today that they've shaped our public policies. So things like welfare reform is not my theology, and yet it's become part of our common existence here. So I can say to you, right wing theology isn't accepted by a lot of the country, but we still are living with its consequences because it's been adopted by people in power.
0: Well, let's just go back a moment and let's look at that. Let's contextualize that within a social uh, framework as a pushback to the gains of the southern freedom movement first of all right wing christianity was always always operated in the south evangel evangelicals in the south always promoted segregation and a kind of fascism and a god that was on the side of the empire and a and and and, and, and a punitive uh god in terms of color that black people were enslaved or black people were oppressed because of the curse that god had uh, placed on black people and so that we need to be very clear that this is not new in american society let no, me No it's me not finish. new it's
1: just become ubiquitous to
0: the rest of but, us no let me let me just say something it's really so so with the gains of the southern freedom movement and the kind of liberation theology. And, and you have what happened in the Southern Freedom Movement is that during states' rights was the order of the day. And within the construct of states' rights, black people were not citizens. We were wards of the states and we were objects of the state. And the movement gradually began to bestow upon black the federal government began to assert its power and black people became slowly beginning with eisenhower we began well truman eisenhower kennedy all of the the decision policy decisions that they made in terms of moving black people to to legitimize our citizenship that we found that white republicans of white segregationists there there was a constitution there was a revolution that people don't really realize where black people went from being objects of the state to being citizens where state's right was overturned and federal constitutional rights and federal rights became the object of the day and a great deal of the effort under the guise of religion was really designed as a pushback to constitutional and federal power that said that, that equalized the American landscape. And I think that one of the things that we have to realize is that religion, well, let me, let me just say it this way. So I think that in, when, when Dixiecrats left the Democratic Party and went over to the Republican Party hijacked and pushed moderates out of the Republican Party, that one of the propaganda tools that they use, since Roger Elles and those people said you couldn't use race as a, as a way of talking about white supremacy, as a way of unifying white people, one of the things that they use was religion. As a unifying agent, that would really revitalize white supremacist states' rights and white supremacy power. So we have been under an overthrow of the Constitution of this of this country, legislatively, the Supreme Court, and through the executive powers. and And I think religion became a tool of reshaping a white supremacist empire. And it trickled down in all aspects of white society, even trickling down to some degree, I agree with you, into communities of color. But one of the things that I push back on in the campaign uh, conversation is this whole garbage about the American people. And, And as if all people in this country are the same. As if, because what that does is it erase the kind of black folk theology and the kind of Palestinian folk theology and, and all of the indigenous folk theologies around the world that might not have the public presence as empire theology, but that it is, these are theologies that are very vibrant theologies of resistance. And so that's why I pushed back when you said that because you.
1: Well, but I think we're talking across purposes, because I'm saying yes, but those theologies never get out in the public space. How is that going to happen?
0: Are there several public spaces? Hmm. I'm just wondering, what is a public space for you? Because when I go to um, a public space in Atlanta where black people and are uh, gathered, that's a public space, and these things are being talked about. When I go to certain churches or certain institutions all over the country, these things are being talked about. So is there only one legitimate public space? Of course not. And so, I, but I think it's important. Otherwise, you erase the resistance and the realities that are going on in terms of people pushing back and developing alternative theologies, alternative languages, because what white supremacy says is that there's only one public space. And I'm saying the thing about a diverse, uh, democratized society is that we have to begin to rethink what we think about. When you say public, what are you talking about? Who's public? And what public? What spaces? And whose then, spaces, yeah.
2: and then I think that speaks to us as journalists, right? Then I speaks, then that also becomes a responsibility for to shine a light on those spaces. Obviously, all of our extroverted question askers sat in the front row. <laughs> I'm going to insist that someone in back speak next. No, Omid. No, no, it's okay. You have it, but
0: <laughs> let me just say something before we have a question. I really think that. One of the things that we've got to deal with is that how is it that we develop a a theology or theologies in a 21st century capitalist technocracy where only a few lives matter? How do we raise people up from disposability to essentiality? And this goes beyond the question of race. What is it? that public theology can say to the white person in Massachusetts who's heroin addicted because they feel that their lives have no meaning because of the trickle-down impact of whiteness in the world today? What do you say to someone who has been told that their whole essence is whiteness and power and domination? And when that no longer exists, Then they feel as if they're dying, or they feel suicide. They they get caught up in the throes of death, uh, whether it's heroin addiction. I don't hear any theologies speaking to the vast amount. That's why Donald Trump is essential, because although we don't agree with him, he's people think he's speaking to that pain that they're feeling. So what is the theologies? I don't hear anyone speaking to the 45-year-old person in Appalachia who's dying of a young age, who feels like they've been eradicated because whiteness is so much, so much smaller today than it was yesterday. Where is a theology that redefines for them what it means to be fully human? I don't hear any of that coming out of any place today, and we've got a spirit, there's a spiritual crisis in white America. It's a crisis of meaning, and I don't hear the, we talk a lot about black theologies, but I want a liberating white theology. I want a theology that speaks to Appalachia. I want a theology that that, that begins to, to deepen people's understanding about their capacity to live fully human lives and to touch the goodness inside of them rather than call upon them the, the, the part of themselves that's not relational. So that I think that public theology today has a responsibility to develop a life-affirming theology for a dying and gasping white America to breathe life back into... I I think I agree with you, and so I'm going to say caught. Thank you. (laughs) I'm going to say caught. At the same time, however, (laughs) I'm going to say that it is really important, if that is the case, that that has to be accessible to people. And I, and I, but But I think that black theology is accessible to black people. I'm pushing back on the imperialistic notion that just because it's not coming out of white public spaces, it doesn't mean that it's not happening. I'm also pushing back on the notion of people. You said people. And people are very diverse in this country. And things happen in different public spaces. But I do not believe that you can push back on, I have not heard in all the places that I've traveled, it's almost like poor white people are unessential in this country. Nobody wants to deal with what it means, their spiritual displacement. And I think we're sitting on, the, on a power keg, unless public theologies are accessible, that, we, that you're talking about what it means to be fully human and be fully white. Because there's nothing wrong with being European American. That's not the problem. It's how you actualize that history and how you actualize that reality. And I've traveled in these communities where people are dealing, shooting drugs, where people are addicted to heroin. And I have talked with theologians. And rarely have I heard, oh, people wax and wane about black theologies and and other kinds of theologies, but I haven't, it's almost like white people don't believe that other white people are worthy of being redeemed. And I don't quite understand that. It must be more sexy to deal with black folk than it is to deal with white folk if you're a white person. So as a black person, I want a theology that gives hope and meaning to people who are struggling to have meaning in a world where they no longer are as essential to whiteness as they once were.
2: Amin.
6: Um, let me also just uh, thank you for what you've heard, uh, shared with us. Even if some of us have heard a couple of these stories before, it's something entirely different to hear it come in the voice of and from the experience of someone that has lived with them and lived through them. Um, I wanna ask a question that is, this is not a cute question, this is something I genuinely grapple with every day. Uh Uh-oh, it's
0: most gonna be cute.
6: (laughs) uh, And I would love to learn from um, how you have grappled with it, hoping I can learn something from it. And um, when you speak about this love that has been in your bones, this love that you've been raised with of the black folk tradition, in the hymns, Um, The love that Krista talks about is messy and muscular and the love that Serene talks about this revolutionary love, I'm all with you. Um, And all of us want to see love at the center of the beloved community. At the very same time, when I sit with and I listen to black folks in the country right now, to Palestinians, to queer folk, to undocumented folk, to Native Americans, to that 20% of our babies that are living in poverty, 40% of black and brown babies living in poverty, there's also a rage and an outrage, and if not an outrage, a profound sense of suffering and this willingness to say, before you want me to love everybody, I need you to also hear my pain and the suffering of my community. And I'm just trying to learn from you, how do you walk simultaneously with... I'm glad you said
0: simultaneously. Simultaneously.
6: Not at the expense of one another, but how do we, with one breath and in one heart that is trying to be whole, acknowledge this rage and outrage and suffering, which is real among so many people out on the margins, of the power structures, and this desire for a healing and transformative love that can lead to a beloved community?
0: Well, first of all, as you just pointed out, it's not, love is not antithetical to, to being outraged. Let's be very clear about that. And love is not antithetical to anger. There are two kinds of anger there's redemptive anger and there's non redemptive anger. And so, redemptive anger is the anger that says that that moves you to transformation and human upbuilding. Non redemptive anger is the anger that white supremacy roots itself in. So we have to make a distinction. So people think that anger in itself is a bad emotion, but, and, 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 and it's where you began your conversation. I became involved in the Southern Freedom Movement, not merely because I was angry about injustice, but because I love the idea of justice. So it's where you began your conversation. So most people began their conversation with, I hate this. But they never talk about what it is they love. And so I think that we have to begin to have a conversation that talks about, that incorporates a vision of love with a vision of outrage. And I don't see those things as being over and against each other. I actually see them. You can't talk about injustice without talking about suffering. But the reason why I want to have justice is because I love everybody in my heart. And if I didn't have that feeling, that sense, then there would, there, would be no, there would be no struggle. And so I think we have to really begin to think about it in a larger and more expansive way where love and outrage are not at war with each other, and that we're not thinking that the anger that we see as a part of white supremacy is the ultimate expression of any kind of anger.
2: One more question.
0: I have a
7: question about how you—you've alluded to this difference between Black folk religion and the Black church. Um, I'm a son of the Black church, not currently a part of the Black church. I'm an Episcopal priest, mm-hmm. and um, which is basically the opposite—it's a 91% white church, right? Um, <laughs> and and I have kind of. Theology, and I'm doing theology differently as a result of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I've heard within myself, you know, hearing my grandparents, hearing my parents, hearing people like yourself who have firsthand experience of that era in American history. And you were able to name something that I've heard for a couple of years but haven't been able to articulate, and and that's the difference between Black folk religion and Black church. Can you say more about that um, and really name that for me?
2: Thank you. And and I think also where now? Where is it? You know where where does that distinction um, manifest in the world now? In this 21st century. You mean, when you say the world, are you saying in the black
0: community? Or no, are you talking I, well, about the larger well, I just mean world? the larger,
2: the culture. Because it's different. I mean, it's, it's all so much is different from 50 years ago.
0: Well, first of all, it's very obvious. When I say black folk religion, I'm talking about a religion that came out of ordinary folk. And I'm also talking about a religion that began during enslavement. In the in the fields of America, it was a religion that offered an alternative view of God, from the view of God that empire gave us. It was a it was a a black religion that talked about that in many ways translated Isaiah about people living in houses that they plant, eating food that they that they. Uh, I mean, houses that they built, foods that they planted. No one. Da- it was that kind of beloved community vision. It was a vision of justice, and it was also a vision that predicated itself on a very strong sense of agape that even was able, as Martin Luther King would say, was able to find the humanity in people who were slave owners. And it was also a theology of resistance, a theology of reaffirmation. I might be a slave, but I'm somebody. It was a theology of hope. It was a theology that differed very much from empire theology, black folk religion, because empire theology, when the slave owner would go to bed and pray, they would pray that slavery went on forever. And black folk theology prayed for the day of liberation. So the starting points were very different in terms of
2: Don't worry about it, it's OK.
0: It was also, I, I've thought a lot about this. When you look at it, it's, it's when you really want to understand black folk theology, let me give you an example. Black prayers that our ancestors forged I want to thank you for waking me up in the morning, which contested the power of the slave master, acknowledging the power of someone greater, that that the slave master, I don't like the word master, that the enslaver was not the alpha and omega of black life. I want to thank you for the use of my limbs and the multiplication of my tongue. Can you imagine what beautiful language? For the use of my limbs and the multiplication of my tongue. And I want to say thank you, sir. Calling God, sir, was not patriarchal, but it was a way of slapping the enslaver in the face and saying, you're not my sir, you're not my master. So at the heart of it was a very vibrant form of religion and a reaffirmation that black, it, black people refused to bow down. Because what white supremacy requires you to do is to bow down at the altar of whiteness. And black folk religion. Refused to bow down to the altar of whiteness. Instead, it bowed down to the altar of, 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 of God, of something greater than human existence. And the starting point for the conversations were very different starting points. It was also contained all of the sorrow and all of the expectations. I'm going to tell God how you treat me. I've got a right, you've got a right, I've got a right to the tree of life. These were people who were in chains, who were enslaved, asserting their right to the fruit of democracy, to the tree of life. That's black folk religion. Always there is a tension between liberation and oppression, between justice and injustice between love and hate. And I would go on further to say that black folk religion, the kind of resistance movements that came out of black folk religion, have saved America from tilting over into the abyss of fascism. It has been the salvation of a country. It has been the balance to talk about that kind of justice and God talk and, reaffirm- and love and, and right relations. To talk about that in the heat of empire, to talk about God as a liberating God, has, has, has really been an important stopgap to save America from itself. And I don't think that's been understood, the, the role that, that African-American folk theology of folk religion has played in equalizing, uh, uh, providing an equilibrium in a society that the very nature of white supremacy bends it towards a kind of fascism. And had it not been for black folk religion, and, the, and, and even the abolitionist movement and those kind of alternative uh, theologies, I think this country would have long gone over into the abyss of, 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 of fascism and the kind of demagoguery that we see really uh, reinventing itself today because in the 1890s, at the end of Black Reconstruction you had the rise of Ben Tillman and those demagogues uh, in the Southern experience, so yeah. this is not new.
2: I want to ask you. Um, so, if uh, if black, this this black folk religion is not synonymous necessarily with black church, if one place where it was located for you was in the school school system Wait, that no uh, longer exists, let me, let me
0: clarify you. something. Yeah. It is in the church. There's a difference between being in the church and, and being the church. OK. And okay. I just want,
2: so I want to ask you, where, where do you see this black folk religion that, that nurtured you, that nurt- has nurtured this country, where do you see it most alive today, most present? Where do you experience it?
0: I see it in some parts of Black Lives Matter. I might be black, but my life matters my life is essential Mm -hmm. to the American project. Um, I see it in some aspects of LGBT issues, Mm -hmm. in terms of the assertion of one's humanity, right relations. Um, I see it in different spaces in this country. And it's not just because black folk theology was not simply contained within the black community. It impacted um, all aspects of American society. So I see it um, even in our conversation, although I think that um, economics is not the sole um, definer of human existence, to even talk about economic equality is some part of black folk theology. But So I see it in where what is very disturbing, however, are the places where I don't see it, really bothers me tremendously. Let me just end by saying, I've been working with black children. Stop the war on our children. And one of the most devastating realities for me was to discover several incidents were black children, six and seven years old, in schools in this country who had reported to their teachers that the toilets were stopped up, and their white teachers made these kids clean the toilets filled with feces and urine with their bare hands. Hardyville, South Carolina, Jacksonville, Florida, and a little small town in Washington state and Texas, the degradation, the humiliation, the subjugation that's going on. Because when you destroy the young in a community, you're really trying to destroy that community's future. And black children and brown children are up against some powerful forces. That, that have set about to decimate their spirits to humiliate them, can you imagine your six year old child coming home and telling you that they had that they were made to clean the toilets with their bare hands that was filled with that were filled with urine and feces? This is America. Orlando does not come out of nowhere. It feeds on this kind of hate that I've just described. That's manifested in how young black and brown children are being, do you know that black children are being taken out of schools in handcuffs and ankle chains? for simple childish infractions, such as chewing gum and fighting in school? Do you know that in schools throughout America that the schools are militarized with ak Fort rifles, uh, grenade, lunch pads, and what are those other things I always forget, Cheryl? But the militarization of public schools in this country No one, I I don't hear a lot of conversation about this. What does it mean that brown and black children are attending schools that are militarized with police officers who are putting young black children and brown children whose arms still bear baby fat in chains and taking them to jail as happened in Baltimore, Maryland, Columbus, Georgia, and put them in cells with seasoned criminals, and don't even tell their parents that they're taking them to jail for fighting
2: um, i we need to finish and i um, I, I I don't quite know if
0: so I guess I wanted to get that plug in I'm sorry no,
2: no, it's good. I wish we could just sit here and and just take it in for 10 minutes. And we, we will. We'll finish in a minute. And then Let me just
0: ask a question. So I want yeah. to ask the audience a question. What do you think about public of. theologies <laughs> in a world where black and brown children attend militarized schools and where fashion is criminalized? Where they are being beaten and killed, Cheryl and I have done a database of black and brown, black children who've been killed since two hundred since two thousand seven, and there are more than four hundred black kids from seven years old to eighteen years old who've been killed by state-sanctioned uh, murders by police. How do we talk about state-sanctioned murders in the face of such? decimation. How do we do that? How do we talk about God? What is the meaning of God? How do we talk about God and not have any public consciousness of these kind of things? Does that mean that we are dealing with theologies that are abstract, that are divorced from social meaning and context? What is the nature of the world that we live in today? What does it mean that since the 1990s, we've been living in a society? You talk about violence, but the police force, the police have become militarized. Right there in Columbus, Georgia, where I grew up, the Koch brothers have an ammunition factory where they supply police departments with guns and other kinds of weapons, and their theme is from the Middle East to police departments. Mm-hmm. I, what, wh- where do we put militarization in our conversation about nonviolence? Is nonviolence some warm, cozy, sexy thing? What is it? How do, I mean, I don't hear a public outcry. And you can get me on public again. I don't hear pu- a public outcry from theologians talking about what does it mean to talk about God in a militarized new world order. What is the new world order? How do we talk about the new world order within the context of theologies?
2: Okay, That's out in the room. And we're going to dwell with those questions. Um, Yeah, you know, I had other things I wanted to. I'm sorry. No, no, don't be sorry. No, don't be sorry. It's just that I want to close this off, because we're recording it. And also, we want to just take a break. And I think a lot of what you, especially what you've just said in the last 20 minutes, we need to just digest it, right? Um, so I feel like everything I thought I might ask you in closing is inadequate. Um, I, you mentioned Orlando. Um, and I'm going to bring in Twitter, which sounds trivial, but on the other hand, we have a Twitter is an important force in our world and it's an important force in something like Black Lives Matter. Um, uh, I, I was a uh, I was tweeting uh, f- lines from, from something I, I wrote. And I, I, the, the tweet that happened to go up the other night when Orlando happened was from John Lewis. And it was a line about seeing, you always have to f- insist on seeing the goodness in everyone. You don't give up on anyone. Yes. And that lands in some of these most fraught moments in America awkwardly, right? And I think on the one hand, I really do believe that most, well, I, I believe so many of us experience the truth in that kind of statement. And yet, how do you reconcile that? Now, you remind us of the violence that you lived with, that so many people lived with on a daily, hourly, you know, minute by minute basis. And you actually are somebody, somebody took a bullet for you. Right? Um, but how how do you think about uh, how to make real and reasonable uh, that kind of elemental truth, insistence of the Civil Rights Movement, and I think of the Black Folk Church, uh, in our world right now in the midst of these hard, hard places?
0: Well, let me just start. And I'm probably going to get pelted with rocks. But let me just be
2: I a promise little brave. you won't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this whole business of demonization, I've been deeply concerned about it because it does not locate the good in people it does it gives up on people and you see that most especially in the right and the left i have been very concerned about the demonization that comes out of right wing communities and also the demonization that i've heard on the left it has been and it comes from the same source of displaced whiteness that has been very disturbing in the anger that whiteness does not mean today in people's minds what it meant yesterday. And so you see that most manifested in the demonization and the dehumanization of Hillary Clinton. It's very disturbing because if you were to listen to the characterizations, you can disagree with someone But to never say anything that the person has anything good in them is problematic. And let me tell you why black people voted for Hillary Clinton, because we've been on that firing line before, and we understand demonization, and we identify with her, and we can't, and black people can't, black people know that motion when the world has nothing good to say about you. And the other thing that people identify with is that her resilience, the way that she keeps on keeping on and getting up and fighting. And it's so I think that there is at the heart of this business of finding something good in, in people and not giving up on anyone and not writing anyone's epitaph or obituary until they no longer have breath in their bodies. Mm-hmm is very problematic today. And I have had deep problems with the anger, the vitriolic rage that has come out of the right and the left. And I never thought I would say this, and the only safe landing space seems to be in the middle. <laughs> and and, <laughs> and and I think we should really think about that. Um, I I I do believe that we are witnessing something that we need to pay real attention to. I know that when I and I haven't declared who I can vote for because I can't say that as head of a nonprofit. But I can tell you I've been called everything. And this is public radio. Okay. <laughs> and I've, I've been called everything, like be everything, all of the obscenities that you can think of, a shrill, a troll, all kinds of things, simply because I've made the statement that there must be some good in Hillary Clinton. That she can't be the monster that people make her out to be. And there must be some problems in Bernie Sanders, because he can't be the God that people make him out to be. And so that we've got to begin to, we've got to have some balance and ask. From the very beginning, I saw this anger and I identified it early on. It was very problematic although people were ideologically different, the anger felt the same. Hmm. And it became very clear to me when people said, well, rather than vote for Hillary, I'll vote for Trump. It's like, but if you're so ideologically different, how can you vote for Trump? What is the unifying thing there that would make you say that? And I think it's a displacement of whiteness. And the anger that, ha- that has come with that. So so last question. Um, if
2: we said, as we did at the beginning, as you did, that that the, that theology, that, that, the, that the public voice of theology addresses the human condition, and clearly it's the human condition that has to be addressed, and not just the political system or the candidates. Um, tell, tell us, just how you would start to talk about how you think about what it means to be human, how your sense of that has evolved through this life you've lived, these passions you've had.
0: What it means to be humans. (laughs) We live in a very diverse world. And to talk about what it means to be Humans is to talk with a simultaneous tongue of universality and particularities. So, as a black person, to talk about what it means is to talk about my experience as an African American person, but also to talk about my experience in a that transcends being an African-American to the universal experience. So I think we've got to stop speaking about humanity as if it's monolithic. We've got to wrap our consciousness around a world where people bring to the world vastly different histories and experiences, but at the same time, a world where we experience grief and love in some of the same ways. So how do we develop theologies that weave together the I with the we and the we with the I?
2: Ruby Sales, thank you so much.